Well, while we grieve, we also have reason to rejoice. This is the first Sunday that Mr. and Mrs. Jimbo Atkins are with us this morning. Congratulations and welcome. We're excited uh, to have you here. And then we also have an engagement, I believe, that happened over this weekend, too, in the Ingram family. Uh, So please make sure you say congratulations to to each of these families when you have an opportunity. Uh, I find it amazing that when we just sang the hymns that we did, the contrast of let all mortal flesh keep silent. You get to that third verse, which talks about Isaiah chapter 6, which precedes what we're going to talk about this morning, where Isaiah has a vision of God, and it causes him to fall to his knees because he's unworthy. And then the next hymn we sing is Hark the Herald Angels Sing, where the angels invite us to come and worship the newborn king. Because of what Christ is getting ready to do in the world, we can approach this God once again and be reconciled to him. It's a beautiful picture. Uh, Let's not lose sight of it this season. Let's pray. God, we pray that you would work in us through your word. Uh, Lord, you tell us that your word does not return void. It is live and it is living. And that is because, Lord, it, it describes and proclaims who you are. It was written by your Holy Spirit. It is imparted to us by the Holy Spirit. And we pray, Lord, that the Spirit would work in us now so that we might know more about Jesus and we might love him more and adore you more. We pray this all in the finished work of Christ. Amen. Well, last week we completed the Abraham narrative in Genesis. And that sparked a conversation in our staff meeting regarding Abraham's lived out faith over what Paul said regarding him in Romans chapter 4, verses 19 through 22. Paul writes these words. He said, He, meaning Abraham here, Abraham did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith, and he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. With all the foibles in Abraham's life, Brian asked a question of how we should consider Abraham's faith as, quote, not wavering according to that passage. And it was a great question. As Paul wrote, Abraham's faith grew, which implies that Abraham got better at being faithful over time. It was never a perfect faith, but it was a constant faith. And we arrived at the conclusion that our belief in the promises of God will never be perfect. There is only one person who has ever lived on the earth that has demonstrated perfect faith in those promises, and that's who we're going to talk about today. And over the month of December, I'd like to explore a little more about Jesus' relationship to Genesis and specifically the promise that was made to Abraham. It is Advent season, so of course we'd want to talk about the incarnation of our Lord Jesus. In our Advent reading last Sunday, we read this passage from Isaiah. This is one of the more famous prophecies concerning the coming of Jesus. And I chose it in preparation for our sermon today. I just read from Romans how Paul described Abraham's faith in the promise to generate an heir even in his old age. We should keep in mind that Isaac was not virgin-born, like Jesus was. Just going through with the act of producing a child at such an advanced age would be a demonstration of faith. 
And this morning, we're going to examine this passage in Isaiah that was also looking forward to a future child, another son that would change history and could complete what Abraham could not in faith. So in order for us to truly grasp the meaning of this prophecy of Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, we need to get a little background as to what's going on when the Lord spoke through the prophet. So I need to provide just a little historical background here before we get into the meaning of the text. We'll discover here that there are three babies involved, three sons to be exact, those that will become signs confirming what Yahweh is doing with his people. And as we get into the text, we're going to see three pronouncements or or three prophecies, a word concerning a coming judgment, a description of the current behavior among Abraham's descendants at the time, and a word regarding a coming hope. I think we'll find that the circumstances will be remarkably similar to our own day. And my desire is that it would produce as much hope in us as it did in Isaiah's time. So let me set the historical scene of Isaiah chapter 8 and 9. God has been faithful to Abraham in using his descendants to produce a people that would represent him upon the earth. If we were to read the first chapter of Matthew's gospel, we would see the lineage from Abraham to King David. And David's rule represents the pinnacle of the nation of Israel, God's chosen people. But sadly, under the rule of David's grandson, Rehoboam, the nation splits into two, north and south. The northern portion is still called Israel, and it includes the areas of the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali, two of Jacob's sons. It's also referred to as Samaria. The southern king kingdom is also, or is called Judah, after Jacob's son, who was granted the divine promise originally given to Abraham. So at this point in history, after David and Solomon, we have two kingdoms that claim to be God's people. The northern kingdom becomes completely wicked, abandoning much of their faith in Yahweh, though there were still a few that remained faithful within its borders. Much of that was due to the fact that their kings were all bad men who were intent on power and serving gods of other nations. None of the kings of northern Israel had any direct tie to King David. The kingdom of Judah goes through periods of belief and unbelief, usually coinciding with whether or not the current king was leading the nation to be faithful to God. So a huge problem for the Jews were were leadership issues. Poor leadership affected their everyday spiritual lives. Sound familiar? So at the beginning of chapter 7, it's around the year 730 BC. The current king of Judah is a descendant of David, and his name is Ahaz. And he learns of an alliance between the nations of Aram, which is also known as Damascus, and the northern kingdom, Israel, that they both plan to join together to attack Judah. Now, just so you understand, in this passage, we'll also have the name Ephraim. Ephraim was the son of Joseph, another of Jacob's descendants in Genesis. It's one of the largest tribes of the original family and sometimes called uh, the northern kingdom by its name of Ephraim as well as Israel, which is another reason why we need to study Genesis to know where all these names and these people come from. This alliance between Aram and Israel frightens the people of Judah. 
But the prophet Isaiah shows up on the scene, and he tells Ahaz, do not worry because Yahweh is with Judah. And as a sign of God's protection, the Lord says, Isaiah and his wife will have a son, and he will name this boy Emmanuel, which means God is with us. And this child will grow, and by the time he can make his own choices between right and wrong, about the ages seven or eight years old, the threat to Judah will be over. God is going to use the Assyrians to wipe out Aram and Israel. That's chapter 7, and that is the context of what we're going to read in chapters 8 and 9. So let's look at this judgment against Israel, the northern kingdom, where we read of another son that is to be born to Isaiah. Verse 1 here of chapter 8, Then the Lord said to me, Take a large tablet and write on it the common characters belonging to Mahashalahazabah, and I will get reliable witnesses, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Yebarakiah, to attest for me. And I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, Call his name Mahashalahashbaz. For before the boy knows how to cry, My father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. So in addition to Emmanuel, Isaiah is going to have another son. This is son number two, and his name is Mahashalahazbaz. Translated into English, it means quick to the plunder, and swift to the spoil. Now, Emmanuel is a popular name, but I'm not sure why quick to the plunder, swift to the spoil hasn't caught on yet. So those of you who are expecting children, here's a good name for you to be able to use, Mahashalahashbaz, right? But the point of naming the child this is to show what is going to happen to the kings of Aram and Israel by the time the boy can speak. Both nations are going to be plundered by the mighty Assyrians. So an oracle is pronounced here in verses 5 through 10. The Lord spoke to me again. Because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently. Now here are two kings and rejoice over Rezin and the son of Ramaliah. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory. And it will rise over all its channels and go all, uh, over all its banks, and it will sweep into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breath of your land, O Emmanuel. Be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. God tells Ahaz, look, because these two nations were not content with what they had, they're going to have the armies of Assyria sweep over them like a flooding river. It's going to wipe them out. They can make all the war plans they want against Judah, but they are going to be overwhelmed and erased. And the decimation will even reach the border of Judah. But Judah doesn't have to fear. Even though Assyria will come to her borders, God is with Judah and she will stand. But in the second part of the chapter, there is a warning to the people of Judah as well as to the people of Assyria, Israel. Judah is to be careful not to follow in the footsteps of the northern kingdom by becoming a nation that doesn't fear Yahweh and make him their God exclusively. Verse 11 here. 
For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that the people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, meaning both the northern and southern kingdom, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it, and they'll fall and be broken, and they shall be snared and taken. This is so like mankind. We want it both ways, don't we? We want God's blessing, but we also want to serve our own little idols, those material things that become a snare to us. We want our nice decorated houses, our decorated careers, our financial portfolios, the nice car, our kids to be well off, even our safety and security to be the top nation in the world. And we will sacrifice our integrity in order to possess these things. We worship the created things rather than the creator. We want these things more than God and don't trust him to provide what we need. The same was true of Israel and Judah. They allowed their fears to motivate them to seek security in something else other than Yahweh. So Isaiah says specifically in regards to what is happening in the northern kingdom, bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. You and Judah, you listen to this. This is a word for you. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me, that's Emmanuel and Mahal Shalahazbaz, are signs, importance in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To, to, to the teaching and to the testimony, if they will not speak according to the word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry, and when they are hungry, they will be enraged, and they will speak contemptuously against their king and their God, and turn their faces upwards, and then they will look to the earth. But behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Now understand, that is the condition of the northern kingdom. Rather than trust and turn to God and his word, they're going to sorcerers and seances. Judah is warned not to do the same. And we know from history, in 722 B.C., the Assyrians came through and wiped out the nation of Israel. They defeated the northern kingdom about the same time, eight years later, that Emmanuel had learned right from wrong and Mahashalahazbaz had learned to speak. The Assyrians tried to take Judah, but God supernaturally spared the southern kingdom for another 150 years until they too become apostate and turned away from their God. But this is what became of the nation of Israel. The northern kingdom had the most tribes of the descendants of Abraham. They were lost now in darkness. They had turned from their God and they suffered the consequences. They had no light, no hope, nothing to pull them out of their misery. They had been left to the world of the Assyrians, one of the most barbaric and chaotic empires that history has ever seen. 
That's it for them. They were no longer considered God's people. Their leaders had led them completely astray. They were done. Nothing but darkness and gloom. Is there any hope for them? Had God abandoned them completely? Well, that is the beauty of our passage in chapter 9 that we read every Christmas season. And regards another son that will be given. One that will reverse the effects of the curse. So we read in chapter 9, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. This same area that was decimated by the Assyrians, overrun by the Gentiles. Their their apostasy was so bad and so corrupt that even in the first century, you could barely tell the difference between a Gentile or a Jew by their behavior. And we're told that this people, who were in great darkness, were now going to be able to see a great light. How and why? Well, Isaiah tells us that God chose to honor Galilee to be the place where his light emerges. Now, in the region of Galilee is a town called Nazareth. Now, keep your finger here and turn to Matthew chapter 4. This is found on page 809 of your pew Bible. Now, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the city of David, but his parents migrated to Nazareth in Galilee. And when the time was right, when Jesus was an adult, Jesus traveled south to Judah to be baptized by John the Baptist. And then he had to face his temptation in the wilderness where he was completely faithful to the Father. Now let's pick up the story in verse 12. Now when he had heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. There are two names again. So what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom is at hand. So where did Jesus begin his public ministry? In Galilee. Where did the, he first start proclaiming the gospel and what was known as the northern kingdom? In this very spot that Isaiah said was wrapped in darkness, in Jesus would be life and the life that was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome it. So let's return back here to Isaiah chapter 9 to see what this light is supposed to do. In verse 3, the prophet says, You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. This one comes to bring light here that turns the gloom and doom into joy. 
The nation is increased in him. The citizens are so excited as when crops are harvested and everyone gets their share and has an abundance. A complete reversal of what we just read in chapter 8. So we've moved from darkness to light, from gloom and doom into joy. And in verse 4, for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. From being dominated by the enemy and being in captivity to total victory over him. So keep this in mind. The condition of the people have changed. Instead of destruction, like with Assyria, something else was coming from the north that will enlarge the kingdom with more people, that will turn darkness into light, doom into joy, oppression into freedom. Why? What changed to create these conditions? This is when we learn of another baby, another son, not born to the prophet this time, but something utterly special. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. Now remember, part of the problems with the Jews was being led by a sinful ruler. This son has come to conquer and to rule, and he will replace the old regime. Who is he? And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. There are four titles here. The proper translation of the first is counselor of wonder. It means whatever wisdom this child speaks is above that of ordinary men. Then there is mighty God, or translated properly, God of the hero. One wonders what Isaiah is in, that he's endorsing some kind of blasphemy by calling this child God. And the third title means eternal father, which refers to his rule for all time and his benevolence and the prince of peace. This royal child to come will bring peace wherever and whenever he comes. So what will he do? Verse 7, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Get this, this son will have rule over everything. There will be nothing that he will not rule over. His kingdom has no end as far as his jurisdiction. And he will assume David's throne. He will be the one to fulfill the prophecy given to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, that his descendant would reign over the world forever. And look how he will do it. Unlike the barbarity of the Assyrians, he will rule in justice and in righteousness. Think about it. When was the last time you could trust the government to have your best interest at heart? With this son, you will never doubt it because he will uphold his position with justice and with righteousness. And then we have the tenure of his rule. This will be forevermore. There will never be a day that he will not rule. It is eternal. And how did Isaiah know that this would be done for certain? Well, the zeal of Yahweh of hosts will accomplish this. What is zeal? What is zeal? It's enthusiasm. It's having a a one-track mind. 
My dear wife is zealous when it comes to putting puzzles together. If she had her way, all of life would stop until she puts the very last piece in. That is zealousness. And where was this zeal to establish this son who was called counselor, God, eternal father, peace coming from? It's coming from Yahweh. It's his zeal that will establish this, right? And remember, we've already been learning. What Yahweh wants, Yahweh gets. Y'all are catching on. I love that. In Genesis 12, God calls Abraham to be his new representative on the earth. How well do you think he did? Eh, he did okay. Not purely well, but he was faithful to the end. But Abraham is the best that the earth had to offer at the time. And we could name all the others that, that followed after him. Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Joshua, Samson, Gideon, David. All of them were okay, but none of them were perfect in their faith and obedience. Each son in our passage this morning was a sign, a sign that inevitably came true. But this son, whom Yahweh will send, will be perfect in his faith. He will be absolutely perfect in his obedience to the Father. So much so that when you see the son, you will see the Father. And this son comes not just to rule, but to conquer. And that is precisely what Jesus did. By his sacrifice on the cross, he completely disarmed sin and Satan. The law enslaved us because we could not maintain it and live up to it. But Paul writes, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And he disarmed the rulers and the authorities, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Wow. No more oppression by our sin. It can no longer dominate us. Now, many people have, have heard about the character of Hiro Onodo, the last Japanese soldier to surrender in the Philippines. He held out for 29 years before he surrendered his sword. But there was actually another Japanese soldier who was discovered 10 months later on the island of Moratai in Indonesia. His name was Teru Nakamura. Unlike Anato, who deliberately refused to uh, who deliberately refused to surrender, Nakamura never knew that the war was over. He was presumed dead and missing in action. No one told him that the war was over, so he lived hidden in the jungle for 30 years. And when he was discovered, he was feted by the Japanese people. He was considered a hero as one who never surrendered to the Allies. And when he returned to Japan, he discovered just how much the world had changed. He learned primarily that the enemy that he was told that was so horrible was way more benevolent than he was told. Many of his family had died, and his baby son was now an adult. And Nakamura died a mere five years later after emerging from the jungle. He had a cancer that had been left untreated. But like I said, he was remembered as one loyal to his defeated cause. I can't help but think about how Nakamura spent 30 years in the jungle, separated in home and family, all because he didn't know 
that the war was over. All of that time in a self-endorsed prison in the dark jungle of Indonesia. But how many of us live like that? Christ has come to set us free. The war is over. We can be free from our sin and peace, restored, and enjoy all the benefits of becoming a child of God if we will only come to the light. How many of you intentionally sit in the darkness when the light has come? We need to think about this at Advent. Jesus didn't just come to save. He also came to rule. It is his divine right. And through what Jesus has done, he has earned the right to rule over all. He welcomes all to him, not just the Jews, but the Gentile nations as well. We Gentiles now have access to the promise of Jesus' salvation and leadership. This became abundantly clear in my scripture readings this week. I'm going to ask if you will, please turn to Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 3. And as you're doing so, I just want to remind you that whenever Paul uses the word mystery, he is never using it as though this mystery still exists. He always uses it in the context of what was once unknown has now been revealed. We now know what the mystery was. We understand it. In the previous two chapters, Paul explained how Jesus destroyed the dividing wall between Gentile and Jew. So he says of himself here in verse 1, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I've written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it's now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Do you see that last verse? Anyone can find light in Jesus. Anyone. Those who were put away from the northern kingdom to we in America today. And it was Paul's mission to proclaim this gospel, to make it his life's goal, to make sure that every person knew salvation is available in Christ Jesus. Now turn to Romans chapter 1, just a few pages over, page 939 of your pew Bible. Most people barely glance at the first few verses of this letter because of the magnitude of truth that Paul gives throughout it. But the first few lines actually set up what follows. Romans chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about obedience of faith for the sake of His name to who? Among all the nations, 
including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Do you see that? All can come to Jesus. Doesn't matter your nationality. Doesn't matter your economic status in this world. It doesn't matter your ethnicity. All can come to Jesus because of what he has done and be reconciled to this God. Providence, Baptist Church, exists to declare the sovereign majesty of God. And Christ is sovereign. He is ruler over all because God has made him ruler over all. The zeal of the Lord of hosts has accomplished this. He is, Jesus is, Emmanuel. In Christ, he is the one that won the spoil. He was quick to the plunder and swift to the spoil. In Christ, he is the wonderful counselor that is the word who became flesh. In Christ, he is the God hero that rescued us from Satan and sin. In Christ, he is the everlasting benevolent father doting on his adopted children. In Christ, the prince of peace, he has made a way for every person to be reconciled to God. But you must take hold of it. You must claim it and put your faith in it. And placing your faith in Jesus is simple. It means you must bend your knee to him and say, you are my Lord. You are my salvation. And I want to live for you for all of eternity. Only a stubborn person would not submit to such a glorious and benevolent ruler. Why would you want to remain in the jungle of this world when real victory and life are before you? Come out of the darkness into the light, the glorious light. Let's pray. Lord, our dear brother Paul just talked about this amazing mystery that has now been made known to us, that the one spoken of in Isaiah chapter 9 has come. Jesus Christ came from the north when he proclaimed his public ministry of the gospel to repent for the kingdom of heaven is coming. And then, Lord, he fulfilled every prophecy, fulfilled every law so that we might come to him in faith knowing that he would be the perfect sacrifice, the perfect propitiation that would take upon our sins, that you would punish him in our stead knowing, Lord, that we would receive his righteousness. How powerful is that? You have made known now this mystery. The one who is foretold by Isaiah all the way back in 730 B.C. is now here. And he is reigning, and he is ruling. He is conquered over all. And so, Lord, I pray that in the advent of this Christmas season, as we we contemplate the incarnation, that we would stand in awe of our Lord Jesus, that we would behold this wondrous mystery that has now been revealed to us, and that in the midst of it, Lord, we would bow our knee to Christ. We would say, yes, you have earned your right to rule over us, and we gladly submit to your benevolent authority. Allow us, Lord, to cast our faith upon Jesus and Jesus alone. And we ask that you do so by the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray this in the finished work of Christ. Amen.